Welcome to the More Than Therapy podcast via www.morethantherapy.org, where we do more than therapy and you get thoughts of the day, interviews with extraordinary people, coping skills and strategies, and so much more. Get it? Find out more at www.morethantherapy.org. And welcome to another episode of More Than Therapy. Today's guest is Alice Sarti. Alice, please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Um, well, I'm very happy to be here and honored to be here today. Um, I'm a poet. I am an advocate on a number of fronts around mental health, um, anti-racism work, domestic violence, um, and uh, a mother, probably most importantly. Um, and generally a facilitator of some challenging conversations, I think is <laughs> the through line through my life. Indeed, indeed. You've had issues with mental health. You're a survivor of mental health in many ways. Tell us about your journey regarding mental health and your current track of recovery. Sure. Um, so I've, I struggled with depression my entire adult life. Um, I think like many of us that maybe deal with depression, my greatest concern was always that I, I didn't want to go inpatient. I never wanted to be hospitalized. I mean, that was always like the, the step too far. Um, and after I had my son just over four years ago, um, that choice was very much taken out of my hands. <laughs> and I um, uh, was consumed almost immediately by um, severe bipolar depression. Um, once my son was born, and I spent the next six months in and out of three different facilities, um, a large portion of that um, in uh, a manic, acute manic state that um, they could not get under control with medication. Um, and then finally, once that was able to be stabilized, I was basically able to be taken down from that state thrown into um, a suicidal depression for months on end as I was also trying to attend to being a, a new parent and a single parent of, um, of an infant. So I've experienced a lot of challenging things in my life, but that by far was the um, most difficult season I've ever walked through. Um, I hope on my deathbed I can say that's the most difficult season I've ever walked through. Um, and I think it it exposed me, it, it helped me to, to understand a side of medical care in the United States that most people don't see, um, and a lot of people, frankly, don't recover from. Um, and having had that experience now has given me the desire to bring to light um, some of what I saw, um, and frankly, to speak for, for some people who may not have the opportunity um, or the, the resources to be able to do so, like, like I do have. Uh, so it's been a long recovery. I think, you know, it was probably a good year and a half, maybe two years, before I, I would say comfortably that I was in re remission. Um, and even now, I'm, I'm still uh, very much dedicated to a regimen of medications. Um, but my life has an incredible amount of robustness and rigor and joy 
now um, that I don't take for granted for a single second. Indeed. Thank you for sharing. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But the thing about going through anything, if you learn from it, you can gain from it. What have you gained from your experiences? I think I have um, gained an incredible amount of freedom. I think one of the uh, probably unanticipated results of walking through my worst nightmare, sometimes crawling through my worst nightmare, um, is I realize I don't really have a lot of fear in my life at this point, you know, but if I've survived that, if God was able to not only bring me through that, but use me through it and as a result of it, then there's really not much in this world that I have a reason to to be concerned about. Um, And that's an incredible position to be able to, um, you know, live one's life from. I've just a sense of, of freedom and empowerment to move where I'm directed to move. Indeed, indeed. Domestic violence has been a theme in your life chapter. How has that impacted you, and does it still impact you? Yeah, um, so my son's father, he and I were married. The relationship was very much a whirlwind, Um, and uh, we were both poets and kind of caught up in this very romantic kind of relationship of, um, you know, everything you would expect from two poets coming together, right? Kind of this um, textbook romance. And um, I got very caught up in kind of the image of that as well. Um, And so when we got pregnant and got married, I was um, very much committed to wanting to to just keep this together regardless of anything that that kind of came against us. Um, But what happened in very short order is the relationship quickly started devolving into what I didn't recognize at the time as abusive behavior, um, but it's kind of a, a, a gradual erosion my needs, of my right to have needs, to have opinions, um, and then kind of the introduction of physical intimidation, introduction of physical violence. But it happens even within... I'm only talking about a year from the day, day I met the man to the day I left. Um, it still is such a, a kind of intentional wearing away that even, you know, in the most egregious... Uh, I left after my ex-husband kicked me in the stomach when I was eight months pregnant. Um, and I still didn't think he was an abuser. Um, it took me going to the hospital and having some resources brought in by um, amazing people who said, here's this book, read it, understand the patterns that are at play here, and, you know, kind of decide for yourself um, who this person is. And it was only once I got that information and had the ability to kind of stick my head up um, that I was able to to see the situation for what, what it was and that wasn't going to change, um, and and more so that it would create um, an awful legacy for our son, um, who would be infinitely more likely to, to grow up to be an abuser himself. So uh, I think 
a lot of times people looking from the outside of, um, you know, domestic violence situation will often think, well, why don't they just leave? Why don't they just leave? Part of the indoctrination that's happening is so much disorientation that, you know, women don't know which way is up. They've had um, a lot of their, uh, not only, you know, financial resources stripped, emotional resources, psychological, social supports, all of those things being stripped away. Um, and so to say, you know, why don't you just leave is, is kind of yelling at a paralyzed man to get up and walk. Um, and so I think I gained a great deal of compassion for individuals in that circumstance. I think one of the reasons I do speak about it is because a lot of times people don't associate um, domestic violence. There's, they stereotype and say, you know, a certain type of woman is more inclined to it or not. Um, and, you know, as a successful professional or as an educated woman or these kinds of things, um, yes, you can very much still be susceptible to these relationships. Um, and so educating women about what this looks like, it's not always just what's in the Hollywood movies. Um, you know, my abuser did not berate me in front of people. He put me on an impossible pedestal um, and used, you know, every shortcoming to kind of knock me down. Um, but it did not look like popular conceptions of what domestic violence looked like. Um, and I can say moving from that situation directly into, you know, kind of mental health arena and into hospitalizations. There were so many women that I met in psychiatric units that were uh, recovering or suffering in the midst of um, abusive relationships, emotionally, physically. Um, it takes such an incredible toll on um, on individuals me- individual mental faculties for for folks who are suffering with this. So, um, you know, I I just I hope people can meet largely women in their lives that are um, encountering these situations with compassion um, and to you know offer resources compassionately, but knowing that you're not going to be able to make the decision for them and love them regardless. Right. You are a mother of a biracial son. Tell us about your journey raising your son. It's um, it's an interesting path being uh, you know a single white woman of a of a biracial son because it largely means um, you know preparing him to live in a world that I never lived in in the U.S. I live in a very different world than my. Um, you know, my brown son will inherit in this world. So um, I've, I think one of the things that is most important to me in his life um, is that he is in environments and communities surrounded by people that um, can not only speak life into his journey, but who can also model for him that, um, you know, this is who he can be in the world. And I think one of the things that is most challenging about single parenting um, is it can be extremely isolating. Um, And especially if you're dealing with 
you know, abuse issues or issues where you, you may have had a lot of your social structures uh, kind of stripped away. But I think even in the best of circumstances, it can be very isolating when it's, you know, you and your kids every morning, every night, um, and you're making decisions for them without anyone to really run it by and you know you're just in kind of this bubble trying to do the best you can but not really sure um it it has been probably one of the most critical things to my healing to connect with other single mothers when I was about a year um out of the hospital my son's about a year old um I remember distinctly pulling to the side of a park um parking lot by a park it was dark raining and just kind of breaking down and you know asking God why did you bring me through this entire mental illness journey and everything else just to kind of leave me here feeling alone feeling purposeless um feeling frankly like you know my child should have have better and just praying for other people to come alongside me other women to come alongside me um, and help and it, that's exactly what started happening and uh, I credit that the thing that has been most powerful in my life as a mother has been um, a group I, I led for single mothers um, and just seeing the women that came in to this place almost universally in a state of brokenness and anxiety, loneliness, fear, anger, traumatized, um, and just all of us coming alongside one another to cry, to pray, to um, encourage, um, sometimes just to, you know, sit next to one another as we were struggling, um, to celebrate very, you know, the little successes of uh, a child support payment or, um, you know, a kid's graduation or, um, you know, a, a positive turn in a custody arrangement, all these kinds of things, just to have some village, have some community to feel not quite so alone and so vulnerable. Um, and watching what those women are able to accomplish, um, not always overnight, but in months, in years, Seeing wardrobes go from all black to like purples and patterns, um, it was an incredibly beautiful experience in my life, and something that um, now I look out for those women. You know, I um, and God brings me those women, <laughs> so it gives me the opportunity right. just um, you know be a, a, an ear or a shoulder. Um, for women who need it because we, we can't just be single parents we have to be in a village and um, for ourselves as right. much as for our kids it sounds like a, a beautiful thing the concept of village goes to one of the themes that's paramount in my life called Ubuntu so I can totally relate to what you're talking about and I think it's very necessary as I think a lot of this isolation in this world contributes to a lot of the mental health diagnoses, a lot of the addictive behaviors, as well as the things that youth are going through and continue to go through, which perpetuate that continuous cycle. 
You are the facilitator, the creator of listening sessions. Tell us about it. What inspired it? Sure. Um, so listening sessions has been around about a year now, but the um, the idea for it's probably about 15 years old in terms of at least the seed of the idea. Um, so you came up with it when you were 20? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just about. Um, but I was uh, in grad school. I stu- one of the areas I studied quite a bit was um, around truth and reconciliation commissions globally. And um, I got stuck on this idea of what would a TRC have to look like in the TRC? United States, a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, okay. um, need to look like in the U.S. So, you know, looking at um, international models like South Africa, Rwanda, who have, you know, moved forward from massive atrocities and just um, genocide, um, and yet able, as you see it particularly in Rwanda and Kigali being one of the most um, advanced cities in the world right now, of how could we envision moving from a million people being slaughtered um, in 100 days in 1999 to where Kigali is today, 21 years later, and here we are in the U.S. Um, and just, <laughs> I think, the last... However many years, decades, make very clear that um, race does not ever go away or abate significantly. It just manifests in, in different ways, right? And so um, listening sessions for me came about with this idea of um, the power of testimony, of individuals being able to, in a safe environment, say, this is what has happened to me in my life. And those who um, either have directly harmed them or whose communities have harmed them to be able to come forward and say, I'm going to bear witness to this and just absorb it, not respond, not be defensive about it, but just listen and bear witness to the pain that has been enacted by systems that continue to benefit me as a white person. Um, And so listening sessions is a uh, event in which five black women come together um, to share a single experience for each of them um, that's been impactful in their life. The prompt is basically, you know, you're going to have a room full of white women. What what do you want them to know? Um, And so uh, those stories are not the same necessarily from session to session. I'm really excited that we've actually had the same group of women who have um, been part of it. Uh, we have one of our, our participants for this coming one, Jody James, is actually coming up from Florida to take part. Um, so it, it's a powerful event, um, I think, not only for the white women tendants, but also um, for the black women who are able to share some of their stories. And so basically there is that um initially that period of listening and sharing and then we break into different groups um and i have the opportunity to to facilitate the white women discussion around um thinking about in those episodes how whiteness contributed um to those experiences how it operates in our own lives um and start understanding the resources we have and the leverage we have to change that 
Um, and my goal is that every white woman that leaves leaves with at least one action item, if not more than that. Um, it's been remarkable seeing some of the stories that the white participants have come back with um, in terms of very real work they've taken on um, and a tribute to this experience of just, you know, this is three hours. This is not a college curriculum worth of material of just having a little time to sit and listen um, and not... Um, not respond, not get defensive, but just let our hearts break um, and and really look inward to what we can be doing in our own lives. Uh, and the other thing that, that sparked the idea, frankly, was my time as a spoken word artist, as a slam poet. Uh, I was, you know, very active in the scene for years. And that meant I was in audiences listening um, in this area of the country in the southeast largely to black artists tell their stories of what it meant to live their lives <clears throat> and not you know not monolithically um, about racist incidents but family and God and you know uh, but just to listen and to he- to build my understanding over that period of time, I wanted to think, is there some way that we can create that kind of environment for people to just want to listen more and to seek out additional opportunities for listening? You and I, we met many, many moons ago. I met you when you was a slam artist. And you probably don't remember me. But that's neither here nor there. I do remember you. <laughs> <laughs> I found that you were one of the most amazing poets sitting amongst a, a crowd of great, very great poets that I still admire to some degree today after years of being away. Would you be kind enough to share a poem from your poetry book soon to be on Kindle called Song from the Psych Ward? But before that, can you tell us about that poetry collection? What motivated you to write it? Sure. Um, yeah, so it, going through the hospitalizations and the recovery post-hospitalization, honestly, um, writing is how I uh, get through life. I mean, it, it just is, um, you know, some people have drugs, alcohol, have a pen, um, and I'm, I'm thankful I have that gift to, um, to be able to move through challenging things. It's how I, how I was able to start making sense of um, the experience and things that uh, we don't have language to talk about mental illness in, in America. Like, we, we really don't, um, because we don't talk about it. Um, and I think putting together this work initially was just an act of survival but it has become in terms of where I've shared it and how I've shared it um, hopefully a a way to start cracking open the silence we have around mental illness and some of the taboos we have around mental illness in America and give people language to express really difficult experiences you know someone has a cancer diagnosis and it's heartbreaking um but everyone rallies around them they talk to their employers they get what time they need their family comes alongside them their church starts a meal train you have 
you know, postpartum bipolar depression, I didn't say anything to anyone. Um, and, uh, and most people find themselves very much in that situation, concerns about losing jobs, losing family, friends, children, you know, there, there are really huge consequences in play. So for me to be someone who thankfully is at a point in my life and my career um, of not having a question as to my child's custody of, you know, just having a large safety net in my life. I'm like, well, if, if I'm not going to say anything, who is, right? And I don't, there needs to be sweeping changes to mental health care in this country. And I, I don't believe that that is just going to happen based on those of us who have been through this system raising our voices, but I don't think it can happen without that. Um, and so this, you know, slim little volume of poems was my stake in the ground to say, I'm still here, we're here, and our voices have value. Indeed, indeed. Um, I think that the toughest poem for me, I'll go ahead and and share with folks, is just really the day-to-day of what happens in a facility and um, people coming in with their own traumas and their own challenges um, and just how much the, the hospitalization experience itself can be extremely painful. Um, when you're when you're talking about mental illness, right. um, so this is called psych ward etiquette, or getting out of Bryn Mawr. Sleep as often and as long as possible. Eat. It will help with the nausea from the carousel of pharmaceuticals. Take the meds, all the meds, all the time. Don't ask milligrams, don't ask names. Pray you level out above catatonia. Your neurons can recover after you leave. Realize you're just here, not to die. Anything else they can call therapeutic. Remember, someone else needs the phone more than you. Better not to call anyone you love anyway. They won't understand. They'll think you're sicker than you are because no one would believe this is reality. Don't point to patient bill of rights in prison behind plexiglass case gouged with bike marks. Don't ask for patient advocate. Never say lawyer. Keep your mouth shut. Your demons and divinity are your own. They are all that belong to you now. Respect others' madness. Med or mind-induced doesn't matter. We're all here now. Have mercy on those who have gone mute and move with crab steps down scuffed hallways. Ignore crack of chair to cloudy bulletproof window. Ignore thunk of forehead to cinder block. Ignore shriek cracking open the buzzing darkness, especially if it's your own. And when the shower is shared, with two men who arrived in ankle shackles. When one has split and bleeding knuckles and you learn that five women have miscarried his babies. And when three months ago you could have miscarried your baby after a kick to the stomach and you haven't seen that baby for 10 days and you haven't seen the kicker for three months and now the shadow shows up in ankle shackles to share your shower. 
And when the lock into that shared shower is broken, and when the shower curtain drops to the floor at the slightest provocation, and when you're naked and wet and with chemical shampoo in your hair, and when you have to push the shower button every 90 seconds to summon barely warm water, and when pushing that button makes you turn your back to the broken lock and the broken knuckles. When that happens, keep your one tiny thread bare towel close. Seek God's face in slick tiles if you're so inclined, and don't raise a fuss or fight. And wake up here tomorrow. And wake up here tomorrow. Well, thank you for sharing your story, your life tales, your adventures, your chapters have been very interesting and I think when people know about them when they hear about them they can become encouraged they can learn they can grow thank you do you plan on writing a book about your life well you were the first one to tell me I should write a poetry collection so if you're asking me that question that means that probably yes I should be writing a book so that we'll sounds check like a back great... in a couple of years. All right, happens. all right. Because I think you have an amazing story, just like your songs from the psych ward, I think. Give it to the right person, share with the right person. They can understand. They can feel better about their journey. They can, in many ways, find hope in their journey because some women don't recover from what you recovered from. Some women are severely damaged and continue to be damaged by from where you came from regarding domestic violence and your your mental health tragedies, crises. So I encourage you to, you know, continue working on songs from the psych ward. Consider making it a spoken word book since you are transitioning to Kindle as I think hearing it, hearing the, the persons who evoke these emotions, who evoke these words, hearing the emotion in your voice, just like when you just read that last piece, I could hear the pain in your voice as you talked about your experiences in Bryn Mawr, which is located in, is that the one in Winston-Salem? Yeah, it's like Jacksonville. It's okay, okay. Um, as many people don't know, many people don't have positive experiences. Many people deplore that. But as bad as that experience may or may not have been, look where you're at today that you learn from it, you grow from it, and can speak about it so others can know about it. And perhaps be encouraged to do what they need to do beforehand before they get there. Yes. <laughs> How can people get in contact with you? Um, you can find me Alice Sarti, S-A-R-T-I, on Facebook. I'm old, so that's all I do. Okay. Um, but yeah, find me there. And um, that's where we post information about listening sessions as well. Um, mm-hmm. We usually do uh, quarterly right now, kind of throughout um, North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so check it out. If you're interested in bringing it to you, by all means, please reach out to me, and we can um, we can get that set up. And they can find it on Eventbrite? Um, yeah, so we do our individual registration for each event. It's on Eventbrite. Um, <clears throat> as we're setting new uh, listening sessions up and just kind of getting things started, you'll see that posted on, on Facebook as well with the links to Eventbrite. All right, all right. Well, thank you once again for interviewing with More Than Therapy. 
You can find out more information regarding Morden Therapy at mordentherapy.org. And if you haven't subscribed to the Morden Therapy podcast, which is available on all av- available streaming apps, please do so. That's More Than Therapy. Thank you. Be well. Be great. Join us for listening sessions. This is a unique opportunity for white women to hear directly from brilliant black women educators, artists, activists, mothers, and master storytellers about an experience that impacted their lives significantly. We will listen, learn, reflect, and most importantly, walk away with actions about how we can change our own lives and approach to America as white women. Listening sessions is not a barometer of our wokeness or an exercise in guilt. It's an opportunity for increased empathy and action. Find listening sessions on eventbrite.com. We're excited for you to join us.